And the other funny uh, part is, will Rob listen to this when he's doing the editing? <laughs> no. He'll just he'll just skip over all this part. Or he'll leave it in, which will be even funnier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm half tempted to make like a really bad joke, so he'll have to cut it, but then I'm like, if I do that, then it's recorded and he'll have that evidence of me saying that and I don't want to do that. <laughs> True. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that knows it's not easy being green, but being beefy helps. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And whoa, Richard. Richard being more animated than normal, and that's because he's got something to be happy about. Uh, I that's sure right, we're t- do. <laughs> we're talking about the new Orc Codex today. Uh in fact, uh, this is not, I'm just going to put this out there. This is not a preview copy provided us to, provided to us by Games Workshop. This is from the Beast Snagas special edition box that Richard picked up. So yep. thanks to Richard, we also have the codex to talk about. So, again, so thank you, Richard, for picking this one up. Yep. I couldn't not. <laughs> no, you couldn't yeah. not. Uh, it's, it is a good one. So, I mean, that's a, it's a great looking box of stuff. So got to get in on that. So we'll be talking about that in our main segment, but as always, we're going to start off with news, new releases, and your listener mail. And uh, other than, obviously, Orcs coming and right soon, although the actual Orc Codex itself hasn't been announced, like the the general audience release of this has not been announced, we do know that we've got two new armies coming very soon, and that is... I think they go up for pre-order next week. Yeah. 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 Or I guess they go up for pre-order this week as we're talking. We're recording on an off day because time is wacky now because uh, I'm selling my house. (laughs) (laughs) And not just because of the last year and a half of of pandemic that has completely screwed with my perception of time. But also because I've been busy selling my house this weekend, we were doing showings and I can't exactly record when I can't be in the house. So... Uh, but yes, uh, coming this weekend, so by the time you hear this, this will just be going up for pre-order, or will have gone up for pre-order, the Hexfire box, which is the new battle box with Grey Knights versus Thousand Suns, and the Grey Knights and Thousand Suns codexes, dice, data cards, etc. And the contents of the uh, Hexfire box are kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's... The, the Grey Knight side is... A basically a strike squad box that they tout as purifiers because there is uh, along with that a new Castellan Crow model. Yep, and also a Nemesis Dread Knight. Yeah, I was surprised they actually threw the Dread Knight in there. That was the one that caught me off guard. Yeah, I mean he's he's a nice big cool smashy thing that big big chunky boy. Yep. Well, he's also like uniquely Grey Knights as well. That's so I, I I like adding him because it definitely gives it a distinctly Grey Knight feel. Yeah, and it's it's one of the other few standard plastic kits that Grey Knights have. Right. 
Because really, they've got three, right? They've got Terminators, Strike Squad, which makes everything else, and then the Dread Knight. Yep. Outside of, like, characters and vehicles. Right. And then on the Thousand Suns side, we have a brand new generic character, the Infernal Master, five Scarab Occult Terminators, and ten Zangors and a Zangor Shaman. So... Going Zangor heavy instead of Rubric Marine heavy is an interesting choice, but the Scarab Terminators, especially in an edition where Terminators tend to be pretty resilient, I'm curious to see what their new stat lines are going to look like, because they, they could very easily be an Anvil unit. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the Infernal Master looks to basically be what if Thousand Sons but Chaplain, because they, they, it looks like they do demonic pacts in much the same way as chaplains have like you know their uh like their abilities that they roll for yeah i like that because like they didn't need like another sorcerer unit so giving them you know a buff character that that is more along the lines of a chaplain or or a thing like that is is i think really cool and the model looks amazing right Although I also get the impression he's still a psyker, so yes, they, they do specify that he is still a psyker too. So you're not giving up a psyker by taking this. You still have a psyker in charge. <laughs> but yeah, we've got two psychic heavy armies duking it out, two codexes coming out at the same time. And then they've also been revealing things like uh, it looks like we're getting – like we knew we had cults for the Thousand Suns. Those were revealed in Ritual of the Damned last uh, year but it looks like we're getting sub factions of gray knights as well um they did a uh, like psychic slugfest gray knights and thousand suns throw down with new powers and they showed the uh the ward makers the sword bearers the prescient brethren each having their own special psychic powers so uh gray knights have cha- have chapters of sorts much in the way that like custodes have their sub factions even though they're like one group Mm-hmm. So yeah, cool that's to see. Kind of interesting, and might give a little more flexibility to the to the army, which would be good. Yeah, Grey Knights also do a, a Tides of the Warp, which I think they had added that in Ritual of the Damned as well. I think they they might just be revising that system a bit. And then uh, Thousand Suns get something where they have Cabal points that they earn by have like each psychic phase they earn points based on what kind and how many sorcerers and psychers they have. And they add all those together and then they can spend those points to do, to uh, manipulate their psychic tests, such as making it impossible to deny it or adding one to the psychic test, things like that. So, and you can do them like after the fact too. So like you can add one after you roll maybe. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, in fact, use this Kabbalistic ritual after taking a psychic test for a unit from your army, add one to that psychic test, which could mean, uh, you know, making sure you pass or maybe you were at nine and you wanted to smite that with a 10. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I'm curious to see how these books go. It looks like we're going to see a little, you know, a little bit more complexity in these armies, although it sounds like like Thousand Suns, most of those pieces were already there. We're seeing some new stuff for Grey Knights. So hopefully we'll have some some more fun in those armies. And not that they haven't been fun, but, you know, more variety is always good in builds. So we're not just seeing, like, Grey Knights. Oh, it's always the same Grey Knights every single time. Right. 
And other than that, I, you know, they haven't really announced too much more for 40k. We've seen a little bit more for Kill Team. Um, that is still coming. We don't know exactly when, but, you know, more details on like equipment and how that's going to work and like how to build kill teams. Let's see. I don't think they had announced this when we last recorded, but, uh, Kill teams uh, are built without points, and it looks like it's basically like each faction will have fire teams that you just like a fire team has is made up of these, and your kill team can have like up to two fire teams, or maybe not. It's like it's there's like they've kind of like prefigured the balance in how big you can build teams and what you can what models you can use. So I'm I'm hesitant. So it's because the return the, of formations. Kind of, but tiny. <laughs> mini, mini, tiny formations. But I'm also concerned, and I've seen, like, at least one of our listeners responded when I, I posted on Facebook that I wasn't sure how I felt about it. And that was, um, the, or the last time they did balance without points, it was Age of Sigmar, and that did not go well to the point where they had to put points back in. So, yeah, yeah I. I, I think there's a bit of a difference here in that they seem to be addressing with these like little fire teams a modicum of balance, whereas Age of Sigmar, like there there just wasn't anything there. No, there was no there, there system was of any nothing. sort. <laughs> yeah. Right. It was just pick some models and throw them on the table. Like Well, I definitely think it's a lot easier at much smaller point levels to balance the game. Like kill team level compared to like a full 40 K size game or, you know, Sigmar size game. Yeah. That there's a lot more leeway in that. Like, so I, I, I'm cautious. Like, I don't know how I feel about it either, but yeah, but it also may, I will say it's potentially there or it's a potential way to make the game more accessible to new players when they don't have to get into fiddly point by and figuring out mm-hmm. like, oh crap, like I've gone like three points over, but this these are the models I have. What do I do? Well, so for right. um, because because I don't play it unfortunately, but uh, Dennis, you've played Warcry. Does Warcry use points? I have not played Warcry. I play Warhammer uh, Underworld. Underworld. Ask me that okay. before too. Okay, yeah, okay. I, I always get those two confused. But, like, well, because it makes me wonder, because, like, the advantage for Warcry, and, and again, I have no idea if there's actually Warcry points or not. does have points. Warcry does okay. have points. But, like, the, the one thing that's kind of nice with Warcry is you go and you, you go to the Warcry shelf and you pick your faction, you pick a box up, and that's basically it. That's what you need to play. So, well, if they okay. can. I think you're, yeah, I think it? you're getting Underworlds and Warcry <sighs> switched okay. around. Cause Warcry, <laughs> you build, you, you build a warband. Like you have, mm-hmm. you pick a faction and then you figure out what models you want to use. And, and Underworlds, you have pre-built warbands that are just like, they're like three to six models and that's what you use. So in a way, Kill Team is actually a, like kind of a halfway point between those two. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that's the thing that I uh, that I like about it though is like the, the, at least the potential is if you build you know like what you're saying with like you know here's your kill team for or your your fire team for each faction or you could basically just put a box out that is a you know a kill team box with just those units in it and those models in it and they could be push fit they could be you know pre builds and it 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 does make it a more accessible um, starter product for people so it could be good but. 
I don't know. I'm interested. I'm. I, I want to see what happens with it. Yeah, I, I'm curious to to see how it works. But like, for example, they talk about fire teams for Death Guard. A a fire team could be eight Poxwalkers or three Plague Marines, and apparently you can run two of those as your kill team. So you can end up with you know up to like eleven models, but. It's like there's not, but you aren't. You're like you're not going to get fidgety. And it's like, well, I can fit in five plague marines and a pox walker to kind of fill in those extra points or something. It's like no, you have this or this, or you can mix and match. But each group is going to be its own thing. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's. I'm I'm curious to see how it's going to work out, and I actually have someone in mind to try it out with. Someone who is a like has not played much 40k or and definitely has not played in a long time so if uh i I do want to kind of see what a new player like a completely new player approaches this and how they feel about it so i'm yeah i'm I'm curious to see how this plans out that'll be interesting to see because like that was in in teaching new people how to play 40k that was always one of the hardest things that i had uh, like the hardest time explaining was was list building right because you can't just say well like well can't i just take the models that i think are cool no you have to take certain kinds of models at certain places and so yeah this has the potential to be much more accessible now then the question will be but is it a good game so th- there are two right. two parts <laughs> there and we'll and we'll see if i can get this going we'll see ha- when we get a, our hands on a copy of it We'll uh, give it a try and let everyone know how how it actually pans out. But yeah, that's about it for uh, news and new releases. Uh, So let's move on to listener mail. As always, these letters are written by you, the listeners, and we'll tell you how you can have your letter read on the air at the end of the segment. Uh, First is a letter from TJ Wynog, and I hope I'm pronouncing everyone's names right. That's kind of my thing if I don't, so I apologize ahead of time. TJ writes, Hi, Rob. First off, I love the podcast, and you guys do an awesome job with everything. Thank you, TJ. Uh, I bought my first 40K model about this time last year and was able to play my first ever game this last month. I'm on the St. Louis side of the state and in a similar boat. Major depression issues on and off my whole life, two small kids who can't get vaccinated, and painting over the last year being the thing that kept me kind of sane. Mm, Going out to... (laughs) (laughs) I feel his pain. Uh, But going from zero to hundreds of space marines staring back at me being a visible sign of stress is sometimes counterproductive. But it did help me get almost 5,000 points of Death Watch put together, 2,500 points of Emperor's Spears, and a small pile of shame ready in the wings. Crazy to think a year ago the only model I'd ever painted was planes when I was 10. Well, dude, that that is quite the output for the last year. So you are a hobby hero at this point. I was going to go to the Gateway Tournament later this month, but made the same mental health decision to not. It was a huge relief to me to hear you made the same call. It sucks, and hopefully things can get better for our local areas sooner, and we can all get more games in. Hope you and the guys are doing the best we all can through this. Keep up the awesome job on the podcast, and keep making us in Missouri look good. I can promise nothing on that last last point. (laughs) I will hope not to let you down, but I make no promises. Um... But yeah, no, I, f- I feel everything that, that TJ has put out. And, uh, is it getting better anytime soon? Well, our county just put a mask mandate back into place. So you tell me. 
<laughs> I mean, as of yeah. today, the county is putting a mask mandate back into place. So, uh, but yeah, it's, I, I made the choice not to go to Show Me Showdown and I'm not going, and don't get me wrong, I'm not going to slag anybody else who made the, the choice to, to attend. That was, you know, that's their, their decision. I made it because of, you know, Basically because of my, my kid that can't be vaccinated. So, and I don't feel bad about that. And you shouldn't feel bad either about not going to Gateway. Gateway is a lot of fun, but mm-hmm. not being sick is also a lot of fun. So no, you're, you, you're, you're just fine. Uh, keep hobbying. Um, and you know, uh, I know St. Louis is kind of doing this back and forth thing on, on like masking in public places and stuff, but it will be safe to get games in again eventually it it will yeah. be and so just kind of keep hanging on there and i'm doing the same thing although all my stuff is kind of packed up at the moment so uh but i have access to my models in case i can get a chance to get in a game but i'm gonna be real busy so i don't know if i will but so i'm gonna throw in a very awkward transition to pitch something here real quick Obviously, mask mandates and stuff are going back in place right now, but hopefully by next May, uh, when Midwest Conquest is back on, uh, mask mandates will be over and everyone will kind of be more back to normal. So if that's, if it, if that is the case, we would love to see you come to our event. Oh, absolutely. We're going to have the, you know, the main 40k event. We're going to have a friendly event that I'll be putting on. If you want to just come and roll dice and have fun and like play in a lower pressure situation. So there's going to be a lot of events happening and we'll get, get more into it as we get closer. But, uh, hopefully we'll be able to have that event. And, you know, if you're only across the state, it's a, it's a short drive. Yeah. And we've had plenty of players from across the state come over and visit us. So yeah, we would love to have you there, TJ. Even if it's like Kevin said, just for the friendly event, if you don't feel like getting deep into a tournament, we'd love to have you there. All right. Next, we have a couple of follow up letters to our, to our episode last time where we, uh, during the letter section, we talked about, you know, women in gaming and, and what, mm-hmm. what experiences they have. And, uh, so we've got a couple of responses. First is from Janet Wicks, who wrote us the original letter. And Janet writes, hello, thank you for reading my letter in the last podcast. I appreciate the thoughtful answer and pointing out some of the active women in the game that I did not know about. Well, you're welcome, Janet. Uh, I think it was a good topic to talk about. And, uh, we are definitely, you know, hoping to get uh, more feedback on that. And also, I love signal boosting people to to kind of spread the word on, uh, you know, get more voices and more outlooks on 40K and see what other people are doing because there's some really cool people out there. And if we can do our little part to help spread awareness of what people are doing, I'm all for it. Uh, and then our second letter following up is from Colin Fairs. Colin writes... Dear Preferred Enemies, in your last episode, you talked about women in the hobby and the barriers and prejudice they sometimes suffer from other hobbyists. As I'm not part of either demographic, I'm a 30-something man, father of two, and I welcome everyone in the hobby, I'm upset about this topic as my daughter, aged five, is already starting to show interest in the hobby, and I don't want her to have a different experience in it for me just because she's a different gender. 
Her interest in the hobby started when I bought 16 boxes of Space Marine paint starter kits for a mental health practical lesson at work, and she watched me assemble some of the miniatures and even helped put a base coat on some of them. Since then, I've taken her to a Warhammer store, who were really welcoming to her, where we took part in an introductory painting session. She chose to paint a Stormcast Eternal over a Space Marine, but I got the Space Marine, so still a win. And she really enjoyed the experience. At home, she has been painting some easy-to-build Stormcast Eternals and has even played a a rules-light 500-point battle against my Space Marines using my Necrons. I gave her the choice, but she picked Necrons on her own. I'm hoping all these nice experiences for her will in the future lead to her getting into the hobby independently, and I hope between now and then the hobby becomes much more welcoming for women. I don't know if GW needs to have some women-focused initiatives like STEM subjects have done in recent times to gain that interest, but to be honest, I'm not worried about when she gets older and goes to club nights and or tournaments and gets followed by the creepy bloke, because like her dad, her other hobby is ITF Taekwondo, and a knife hand strike to the throat normally eliminates any unwanted attention. Anyway, do you think there's anything else GW can do to be more inclusive? Keep up the good work and being excellent to one another. From Colin in sunny South England, the UK. Uh, first off, Colin, that is awesome how you are uh, fostering your daughter's interest while still absolutely maintaining her agency to decide what she wants to play and how she wants to approach it. So that is really cool. Yeah. Also, teaching her self-defense, not a bad move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but like, I think, you know, to get to kind of the heart of the question about whether GW can do more, I think, yeah, I think there's always more things that GW can do. They can have, you know, you know, they could do ladies nights at their, uh, you know, at their stores, they could do, you know, kind of, you know, outreach to community stuff. They're, they're doing some of that with some of the stuff we've talked about last time with like, um, the hosts on Warhammer plus like some of the shows, like they've got, you know, women hosts for some of the painting classes and some of the other things. So like, I think just getting, more representation and more people in front of the camera on the hobby will will definitely help. And I think GW can take a lead in this and kind of set the standard. However, I think the biggest impact is going to come from just the people that play, you know, inviting people to play in your local game store, you know, being welcoming when they do show up, being, you know, being excellent to one another at events, like and just making it more welcoming for everyone. Um, I think is going to have the longest and biggest impact. Yeah, absolutely. I think we we did mention last time that there's only so much from a retail level that GW can do, and it is really going to fall to the players to create those environments. Um, GW can definitely make sure that everyone does feel welcome, and and you know, creating welcoming environments at their stores is always a a good thing to do, and you know, getting you know women's experiences and faces out there as part of their here like today they ran an entire article about uh, louise sugden because she's mm-hmm. going to be teaching the the little color master class and showing some of the models she's painted and like her use of color and things like that and so yeah getting those people out there so that like you said representation is a big part of it if somebody can see oh yeah no she she's into the hobby why can mm-hmm. you know and I'm kind of interested. There's no reason I can't be in the hobby or to even just put her up and say, like, look, you know, my daughter sees that you're painting stuffs and, and getting involved in this game. So obviously she can. I mean, that those kinds of things do go a long way. But in the end, it is going to fall on us, the players, to create that environment that we want to see. And yeah. so, yeah, that's but there, yeah. Can GW help help along the way? Absolutely. All right. Next up, a letter from Brian Harnage. Brian writes, 
First of all, congratulations, fellas, on 10 years of fine podcasting. I'm grateful I found this podcast earlier, early in my hobby career, summer of 2011. Whoo, you're, you've been listening for a long while. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now I'm a local organizer and recommend y'all to new players looking for a jumping off point. 40K is a deep pool, so thanks for holding our hands. Well, you're very welcome, Brian. I was writing to get your opinions on soft scores for small local events. Lately, my local players have been struggling with completing games in a reasonable time frame. Two and a half hours for a thousand point event. I know this is a shock, but we're a pretty friendly group of Southerners. We do things a little slower down here. However, people are asking to go up in points, but I feel like this will just cause us to drop to two rounds for a one-day event. Uh, currently, our time frame is limited due to store hours and other events using the store space. I know those feelings. So a possible solution I've been toying with is a two-round event with a soft score checklist worth a maximum of 100 points. Something to make up for the missing game. Plus, our local group has never required painted figures, and I would enjoy rewarding those who put real time into their armies. So, two questions. One, should soft scores such as painting or sportsmanship determine standings in a tournament? And two, or should I ask more from our players? If so, how can I penalize those who are unable to finish games or reward those who complete missions? All love, Brian Harnage, Warner Robins, Georgia, and his Facebook group is South of the Warp. Um, so should soft scores determine standings in a tournament? If you want them to, they can. And yeah, uh, in fact, be- best Qu- best coast pairings is set up to handle that. If you want, you can uh, you know abs. I absolutely recommend using best coast pairings as a TO to do your standings. But you can absolutely have soft scores as part of it. Uh, you can also have soft scores as a side thing. A lot of tournaments will have like best general, who's the person who won the most games and and came out you know one at the end, and then Renaissance man, who is the person who had, like, you know, the best combination of gameplay and painting and sportsmanship. You know, somebody who's done, uh, you know, the most uh, Mm well-rounded in the day. And so those are both, you know, those are definitely both options. I don't think there's a right or wrong way. And I think having soft scores for, like, a a two-round event, I barely consider a tournament but if I, I you could absolutely do kind of a games day with prizes i mean that's that's yeah. fine yeah well, i i think that the one of the things to think about though about if you are going to use soft scores and you know weight them fairly heavily then you'll want to make sure that that's like known by all the people participating up front yes oh yes no no you you announced yeah. that well ahead of time yeah yeah Getting getting everyone getting everyone's input and buy in on it is key. Like you need to let people know up front and make sure that people are interested in this because there's some people who, you know, who want to play in tournaments to win games, and there's some people who don't really care. And like as long as you set those expectations, that's fine. To kind of go back to the friendly event that you know that I'm talking about for for Midwest Conquest, that's basically almost exactly what we do. the The scores are divided up into three three sections. It's win-loss record is one-third of your score. Your hobby, uh, which is like your painting is uh, and and like theming is one-third of your score. And then sportsmanship and like, you know, you're, then that that element was the other third of your score. So you control a third of your um, a third of your score by like wins and losses. The TO kind of has like, you know, a third of your score based off of like the painting judging and and uh, 
you know, theme for what, what army you're bringing. And then your opponent has a control of a third of your score by the sportsmanship scores and things like that. So you could easily weight those differently or, you know, put in different incentives in that. So for example, on the sportsmanship scores, maybe you get a five point bonus if you finish your game on time. Yeah. You know, or, or something like that. So I don't know. Like there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can weight this and, balance it so that you can reward your players for the behaviors that you want to, that you want to encourage, you know, and then it, it, and again, like having like themed lists and things like that and points for that means that people might show up with a, you know, you know, rather than just taking the best units, they will show up with a themed death watch army with like a very specific, you know, uh, build or, or a, a specific formation of, you know, space Marines from this chapter, not because they're the best, but because they look cool and you wanted to bring it today. And I think that would, in- could encourage, uh, could encourage more hobby and more like creative list design while still being able to kind of reward people with prizes by playing games and, and having fun. Yeah, absolutely. And then the, the flip side of that is, you know, your second question, should you ask more of the players? I will say, if you're running a tournament, if these are if you are considering these to be tournaments, then expecting players to finish in a reasonable amount of time and two and a half hours for a thousand point game <laughs> is is more than reasonable. And as loath as I was in the past to recommend them, if you are having problems with players, and I'm not saying slow play in the sense of somebody is trying to screw the other player over by playing slowly, but when you just have people who just kind of enjoy playing at a languid pace, that's when chess clocks are actually a a good thing. And in, with mm-hmm. chess clocks, basically what happens is, so you've got two, two and a half hours. Each player is going to have an hour and 15 minutes to play their half of the game. And if they run out of their time... They can't do like they their turns are basically like, nope, my models just stay where they are. I score anything that I can score based on where I'm currently at. And that's it. And all they can all they do at that point is saves and morale checks. You know, when when their opponent Mm -hmm. attacks, Um, there's a whole bunch of like guidelines for using them. The ITC has them. You can find those on frontlinegaming.org. And. Chess clocks, if for a small event, you'd probably only need, you know, depending on how many players you have, you need one per table. So, I mean, you know, let's say you need, you know, you have five tables, ten players, you'll need five chess clocks. I don't like them necessarily for casual play, but casual play is like, I'm going to set aside an afternoon to play a game. For a a, a store event where you want people finishing games, because that's also going to de- determine... Like points are going to be used to determine like tie breaking for, you know, once you get past win loss, those, those do matter. And, and a player could inadvertently be screwed by winning a game, but because they only made it to round three, especially with the way progressive scoring works in this game, they're going to miss out on a lot of points that somebody who could finish rounds four or five are, is going to get. So you might consider chess clocks or you like, you know, you know, your suggestion of just doing a two round games day event where there's a prize for painting and sportsmanship is also totally fine. So just decide where, how, how much of a, a carrot and stick you want to put on your players, you know, absolutely encourage them to do the things you want them to do, but don't be afraid to, to put in something that encourages them to finish the game. And by using chess clocks, it, it'll take, there'll be a little bit of a learning curve. People will, will, 
have to remember to start switching back on, you know, switching back and forth and it'll take some time. But, uh, I found it really does help keep me in a tournament setting, keep me aware of how much time I'm using. So it does make you rush a little bit, but I'm generally like last time I went to a tournament, it was two and a half hours for a 2000 point game. So a thousand points you should be able to handle in two and a half hours. No problem. It sounds like your players are probably just kind of chatty and lose the plot a little bit, kind of forget they're, they're playing a game, start chatting and not moving models and rolling dice. And this is a way to kind of remind them that, no, you're actually, you know, pardon the phrase, you're on the clock and you've got, you got to finish up the game. Yeah, those are both options. And yeah, soft scores are totally fine if that's what you want to do. And again, Best Coast Pairings, the app for that allows you to create your own soft score categories. So if you want to put in sportsmanship, you want to put in painting, you can put those in and then you can set things up so that those are used to determine pairings and placings. That's totally fine. All right. Our last letter is from Martin Crawley and Martin writes, hi there guys, longtime listener, all around fan of the show. I'm just wanting some advice. Well, here we are. Let's see what we can do. For the last three years, I've been mainly a competitive player of 40k because that's really all that happens in my local area. But me and my partner are expecting our first child, so I'll be concentrating mainly on casual games for a while. Recently, my local club has started a 40k league aimed at casual and semi-competitive play, and I've signed up and already played my first game, which was a lot of fun. But something I was shocked to hear was my opponent asking me what each unit in my army did and what was the best way to combat them. Following this, I had my second league game planned, and me and my opponent had been communicating already about what faction we're each playing, etc., and yet again, I was asked exactly what each unit in my army does and how can he beat them. Is this normal for casual games? I didn't really know how to respond, so maybe I'm just a bit out of the casual gaming loop and not used to this kind of talk from the person I want to beat, but I'd be really interested in your opinion on the matter. Cheers, Martin. Ooh, that's one I've not heard before. Yeah, that's interesting. So, since it's definitely, since you're playing in a more casual environment, I would definitely give a little more leeway. Because it, it might be that you're playing, you know, you're facing players that haven't played this army before, or are new to the game, and don't really know, you know, as much about all of the armies. Because, like, to be fair, if not for this show, I would know absolutely nothing about Eldar admec guard etc like i just because i don't i don't play those armies i don't care um but i have to know we know anything about guard (laughs) i I know that they have cool new freak (laughs) models um but you know what i mean like i know more about guard than i would otherwise (laughs) kevin i I will say to be fair i've played in a tournament recently and i still was asked my players or my opponents what some other models did i mean this is normally your your pregame where you ask what they do but to be honest, like Necrons, I mean, yeah, I know the majority, but the, the specifics, no, I don't. So I asked yeah. him what this does. So that part's normal. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'd, I'd say in the more casual, yeah, if, if like me and Rob were just playing, I'd, I'd say like, man, I'm, what's the best way to deal with some of your Tau? And mm-hmm. he'd probably say, well, get high AP or get, get good. I, I mean, he, he, <laughs> no, it'd be wait till ninth edition. You've got this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fair. Um, 
but but uh, when you run into someone who's just kind of playing for fun, they uh, they probably have no clue what yeah. your models do, and so they they might not be asking like what's the best strategy to beat them, but more like hey, what what is this week to so I can think in my head what I have in my stuff that could maybe put a dent into it. Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like you've got two players in a row. I'm assuming second league game planned. I'm assuming it's against a different opponent because <laughs> uh, no, I, and, and I'm just yeah, guessing yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. if it's yeah. just one person and it's like, well, again, he asked me again, and that's weird. But you'd also think, well, he wouldn't need to ask you again because he'd already asked you once. So if you're new to the casual scene, this may just be the culture at this particular yeah. store. Or like this particular club, where in a competitive environment, you wouldn't ask, how do I beat that? It would be on you to figure it out. Whereas in a, in this store's casual gaming culture, that might be part of it. Um, in which case, you are more than allowed to ask your opponent, okay, so what does everything in your army do? And what's the best things to use against them? That's only fair. Mm-hmm. If they're asking you that, you can ask them the same thing. Um, now, have I heard of that as part of a, like, just a general thing? No. Gen, like, like, like you guys said, it's totally fine to ask your opponent what the stuff in their army does because there's a lot of factions and keeping everything right. straight is very difficult. But asking how, how to combat it is unusual. But again, this is a casual play league. So I kind of get the impression maybe they, they're like talk to whoever's organizing this league yeah um, find out if this is just kind of a thing it's like are we supposed to tailor our lists for our opponents do we have to give them information about how to you know how to beat their army and and don't act you know like make sure when you when you broach the subject don't don't seem offended by it or anything just you know ask the question just say yeah I, i come from a casual or i come from a competitive background i've just never been asked that before and is it is that just kind of a thing and how how the club does it. And if they say yes, then, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if, if they say, Oh yeah, we, we, we generally expect people are going to try to tailor their lists for their opponents. And, but to make it fair, we, you know, encourage open communication on what strategies to use against particular units, not necessarily knowing which units, because it sounds like this is all happening when you're planning out the game rather than at the point of, like sitting down to play. So list building hasn't been done when these questions are being asked. So yeah, it just may be part of the casual culture in that store. And in that case, yeah, ask the organizer, find out if that's considered kosher or not. Well, I I think it's kind of interesting to get this question right after, you know, Brian's previous question, because it really does kind of shine a light on how, how, how every local game group plays, you know, every, Mm -hmm. Every group has their own culture, their own way of playing. Like, just like, you know, with, uh, like tabletop games like D and D, no two groups play D and D exactly the same way. They, you know, customize rules, throw things out, do things differently. So, you know, no two local Warhammer groups play exactly the same way. And, you know, part of it is, you know, learning, learning that culture, um, and, and learning what each group is interested in, what they want to, you know, how they want to play. And part of that is, you know, just, you know, is especially in, in a, in a, um, casual environment like this, you know, it's just to, to, it, it's probably more just people wanting information about your army more than anything. But yeah, I would, 
I would say just ask around, you know, like what Rob was saying, ask the TO and the organizer, see if this is just kind of how things are and, you know, and adjust from there. Yeah, because technically there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. Uh, and the fact that more than one player has done it indicates to me that, yeah, this is just mm-hmm. – kind of a a culture thing that you may not be used to. And like I said, I haven't heard about it. So it, it's just something that I haven't experienced, but yeah, like you said, Kevin, different groups. And, and I think using Brian's letter is a perfect example. It's like the area around here where people are playing, like at a, like people go to a tournament, we've got like some intensely competitive teams Mm -hmm. around here and so the idea of not finishing a game and just kind of taking things slow would be really weird here for at a tournament um so it's just that's that's how the environment is there and martin his club has has a different environment yet and that's going to be very different than the casual games that we would play in dennis's basement you know, it it is all very different and very flexible depending on you know what kind of uh, what kind of a play group you've got and what kind of environment's been built up. So yeah, just find out what if this is normal for that area, and if it is, go along with it. And like I said, if people are asking you how to beat your army, you ask them how to beat their army. Fair's fair. Yeah. And if you have a question you'd like us to answer or commentary on anything we've said or a uh, rules question or anything like that, uh, there are three good ways to get that to us. Uh, first off is our email addresses. Our email is our first names at preferredenemies.com. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferredenemies.com. Second is Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash preferredenemies. And uh, you can like us there, follow us, get announcements on what's going on, get our take on news, new releases, things like that. And get ep- you know notes on episode releases. A third is our Twitter account. We are at twitter.com slash preferred enemy, singular. And uh, we collect messages uh, from all those three sources, collate them together, put them in the hopper, and get through as many as we can in a reasonable amount of time. I will throw a caveat up here that I've mentioned it before that sometimes I have to drill into the spam folder to find messages I Now that I know that they sometimes end up there, I've managed to rescue a few from there. Uh, the other thing is currently my email box is inundated with notifications from my uh, realtor and mortgage loan officer. So I will try not to miss anybody's email. If you want a better chance to get make sure it makes it through, uh, send it to uh, more than one host. We all, we can all get the email. So if you want to send it to Kevin, Dennis, or Richard, um, the they'll also, you know, they can also catch it and we usually, you know, they'll usually pass it along to me to make sure that it is. You mean we actually talk to each other? Yeah, we communicate. It's so weird. You know, I have been meaning to point this out and like, this seems like a good opportunity to do it on the show, but like, I think it's really selfish of you to be prioritizing your mortgage emails over listener emails. That's really offensive. I know, but, uh, I mean, unless the listeners want to put me in a house, and I'm not going to put that on them. I mean, that's, that's unfair to them. Uh, patreon.com slash preferred. However, yeah, I was going to say, if they, if you want to support the show with full disclosure that this does not go in my pocket, this is, this is used to pay for our hosting and, uh, keep our microphones up to date and eventually pay for travel costs to go to events once that's a, a thing. You can go to patreon.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, we are, use our 
our Patreon account is basically an online tip jar. There's no locked content. You can listen to all our episodes for free. Uh, but if you like the show and you have money to help us, um, actually, we recommend that you give money to charities in your area that can use help. Uh, yep. People are going through hard times right now. Uh, you know, obviously, food banks. Also, a lot of people, like, if you can find rent funds, because there's a lot of people that might be getting evicted before too long. So anything you can do to help people in those situations in your area is great by us. Use your wargaming powers for awesome. But after that, if you still want to help out the show, check out our Patreon. Uh, you can give as little as a dollar a month. And if enough people give a dollar, it adds up and it really does help out. So we're going to go ahead and take a break for sponsor identification. And when we come back, we're going to give our first impressions and overview of the new Orc Codex. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a GameMat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it's time for our main topic, which is our look at the new Orc Codex. As I stated earlier, this Orc Codex was not provided to us by Games Workshop, so we're going to say whatever we want. Actually, we would say whatever <laughs> we want anyway, because they don't have any, they don't have control over editorial content. But, uh, <laughs> but no, this Codex was provided to us by Richard, who bought it to get the new awesome Beast Snagus stuff. And uh, I will say Beast Snaggas are looking pretty cool. Yeah. I think Kevin had a question about Beast Snaggas. Yeah. Wh <laughs> what What is Beast Snagga? <laughs> okay. So Beast Snagga <laughs> is a unit type in the Orc army. They'll be keyworded with Beast Snagga, and they will have the following rules. 
Each time a model with this uh, ability makes an attack that targets a vehicle or monster, add one to that attack's hit roll, and every model in this unit has a six plus invulnerable save. Ooh. Yeah. And so there's actually that, quite a few V snaggas in here. Yes. And they go across pretty much all the, the you know, combat roles, because there mm-hmm. are there are HQs, there is a troop choice, making finally orcs having a third troop choice. <laughs> actually they don't have any elites. That's like the one they actually, don't have. Yeah, they don't have any elites. Are you a bit surprised that they did it? As like its own unit, like its own keyword, uh, rather than like its own clan, because I, I kind of kind of assumed yeah, it was just going to be like their own clan. That that's what I was actually expecting was that Beast Snaggers was going to be just a new clan, mm-hmm. but but it's not. They actually threw and and were talking about when they were introducing the the Beast Snaggers that they exist in all the different. Um, clan cultures, some more than others, but they are not their own specific clan, so that that is why they are just kind of a unit type. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, it it gives you another kind of variation of orc to play, because like in the past, you generally had, like, you either did Green Tide, which was just as many boys as you could, or Mm -hmm. you'd do Cult of Speed, which was Boys and trucks and bikes, and then later buggies when buggies were actually made good. Um, and then, or then you might do a Death Dread mob, which was like can wall, like all Death Dreads and Killicans. And, and, and Big Mechs and, yeah, and, the, the like. Yeah, those were kind of like the three flavors of orc you got. And now we've got this fourth one, which is beast snaggas and so yeah you can build an entire beast snagga army or you could build a beast snagga detachment or you could just scatter beast snaggas inside a detachment um and they uh, most of them don't have didn't see too many units that had like that were beast snaggas that had a lot of um synergy with each other where it's like they own like they're well the beast boss does the beast boss has like auras for beast snaggers but that's about it yeah that's kind of one of those the the beast snagger boss does kind of have like if you're not running a bunch of beast snagger stuff then there's not really a reason to just run a regular war boss instead right because they're kind of they are roughly equivalent mm-hmm. and so yeah, we're, we're talking about this. And if you are completely new to this, um, you may be wondering, well, what is an orc in 40k anyway? And the quick definition is generally imagine if gorillas were soccer hooligans made of fungus. Because <laughs> yes. I, I mean, the, the last codex actually really kind of went away. And I don't know that they even mentioned the fungus part. Yeah, that used to be a thing. So in the previous codex, they do mention that uh, orcs have genetic traits of both animal and fungal life forms, and ah. they might have algae in their body, which is why they might is one reason why they might be green. But it's just like a very brief little mention, right? I think it's all imperial propaganda. I I can't 
I can't find exactly the page on it, but it, but there's, there's mention of basically that the, where the orc race came from and how they like procreate and, and, you know, more about their physiology is, is just mysterious. Rumors say that, you know, they could be made of fungus. So it, it's almost kind of a tongue and more tongue in cheek reference to the, the old fungus, uh, <laughs> reference. Yeah, yeah, because like once upon a time, like there's this whole thing in in the in the canon where it's like, yeah, orcs would die and then actually release spores, which is why you had to burn orc bodies because otherwise, like you could kill an, like every member of an orc invasion, and then like years later, feral orcs would just pop up everywhere because they'd been growing out of spores and hiding in caves and stuff, and that's. I don't know how much that's still canon. They, like you said, they kind of tongue-in-cheek reference to it. I think that was also kind of part of the the old canon finger quotes of like, oh yeah, like the old world for Warhammer was just like could have just been in a uh, you know a feral world somewhere in the 40k universe. So, right, I I, I think they have moved away from that a little bit. Yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. still fun to have the tongue-in-cheek references to it. <laughs> But yeah, the, the orcs are basically a race that does not even know its own origins, although there is talk of there were like the brain boys at one point or other that made the orcs good for, you know, made the orcs to basically fight. And that's what orcs do. And they're really good at fighting. And uh, in fact, they say no orc has ever lost a fight because an orc either uh, – because when an orc loses a fight, he runs away, and then he just gets to cut, go back and fight again. So he didn't really lose. And yeah, so orcs are always looking for for a good fight. And so yeah, orcs are made for fighting. And there's also this thing where orcs who win more fights get bigger. And bigger orcs tend to have smaller orcs just kind of – like smaller orcs just kind of tend to gravitate towards following bigger orcs. And bigger orcs become like you, you have your standard orc, which is a boy. And then you have orc, then you have the knobs, which is kind of short for nobles, but orcs don't know why. They're just called knobs. And so then the knobs are bigger than the boys. And then knobs who keep winning fights become bosses and they get even bigger. And then eventually you have a war boss and he's the, he's, I don't say the biggest, but they tend to be the big ones leading everything. And also as orcs, get together, they generate this psychic field, which if you know anything about orcs, or maybe you don't, you've probably heard it, and it's a wah. And so a wah is basically what happens when a war boss gets a bunch of orcs into a combat fervor and he yells for a wah, or a wah might end up being like the a grand crusade of orcs, like just charging through the galaxy looking for a good fight. So, yeah, orcs are this weird, fighty, fungus, psychic, gestalt thing. Also, none of their technology really works unless it's in the hands of an orc because they believe it does. Orcs are weird that way. Yep. Orc vehicles go faster if they're painted red. No one knows why. The orcs don't know why. They just believe that it's the red paint that makes it go faster. That that <laughs> That's why they go faster. They go – it's why they go faster. Members of the Adeptus Mechanicus have uh, looked at orc weapons salvaged from battlefields, and they shouldn't work. They, they're like, you know, it's like there's no firing chamber here. There's no, like, it's held it, together it, as string. It's, it's not even the fact that it, it just 
necessarily doesn't work, but the fact that if you're not an orc and you try to use it, it it's probably dangerous. Yeah, it probably explodes if you pull the trigger. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and and so that kind of gives you the the orky mindset and and orcs have been at one point they were played a lot for humor because they all kind they're all kind of speaking in these like cockney soccer hooligan accents and they still do and if you've seen any of like the newer promotional videos they still have that and they still play into it and they, they've I think they've let the orcs be a little bit you know kind of fun again but at the same time they are really trying to push especially with some of the things they can do in this codex that orcs are also scary as hell. And you don't like, if you're a normal human being facing like a facing down on orc in a one-on-one fight is not where you want to be. And orcs don't tend to do one-on-one fights. They tend to do lots on one fights. Yeah. Well, like if you've seen the, the cinematic trailer for kill team, like that gives you a really good feel for like, what a couple of orc commandos can do to an entire guard team, you know? <laughs> yeah, they're not... Su- I mean, even the sneaky ones are not subtle creatures, so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love some some of the, the infamous conversions of orc commandos, where oh, there's the, you know, like the, the trash can with orc legs, or, yeah. <laughs> or the one holding up a sign, uh, like a, a poster... That has a, pic- a crudely drawn picture of a space marine and says "space marines" spelled wrong on it, <laughs> yes. holding up in front of him. My favorite is still the squad that uh, that forms the rhino. That like when you put them together, like they're each holding a piece of the rhino. But yeah. right, <laughs> yeah, that one's really good too. And so, yeah, so that, that, that's orcs in a nutshell. Orcs also, instead of having things like legions or chapters, they have clans and different clans tend to have different focuses. Um, we're going to kind of keep this review more of a top level, you know, first impression. So we're not going to do a lot of deep diving into it. We're just going to kind of talk about the things that we've really noticed about the codex, but a little bit of quick background on the clans. Um, you've got goths, which are traditionally the biggest, meanest orcs. Uh, in fact, Ga- uh, Gazgol, the prophet of the Great Wall, himself is a goth. Um, you'll recognize them by their black and white checked patterns and uh, a lot of bull horns on their helmets, kind of bull, a lot of bull motif. And they, they're just bigger and meaner than everybody else. Uh, there's bad moons who are the richest orcs. Uh, they are richest because they they grow teeth faster than anyone else because that's how orcs know they're like to basically get a to make a withdrawal from an orc bank. You find an orc and you punch him in the face until his teeth fall out. And big and bad moons tend to have more teeth that are more likely to come out than anyone else. And then they can spend those teeth on the biggest and shiniest gubbins. So they tend to have uh, the best whiz-bang guns and things like that. Evil Sons, they believe, they're the ones that are really into the whole red ones go faster. They paint all their vehicles red, and they are infamous for really being the impetus behind the cult of speed that uh, believes in, in going fast, being loud, and doing drive-by daka-daka attacks. Uh, snake bites are your old fashioned dwarves. All this, I mean, they'll use technology, but they don't have to like it that much. They prevent, prefer to get in there with choppers and get, you know, do their crumping directly and, uh, 
lots of lots of squigs. Lots of the new beast snagas will tend towards snake bite. They're probably yeah. more beast snaga snake bites or snake snake bite beast snagas than anyone else. Yeah, but uh, doesn't mean they all are. They're also kind of superstitious and a little bit backwards compared to uh, a lot of uh, a lot of orcs. Although when it comes to superstition, you can't beat the death skulls who believe blue is a lucky color. Just like you believe red makes your vehicles go faster, blue is a lucky color, and for some reason, for Death Skulls, it works. I think they also tend to do the most looting of any orc clan, where basically they'll just, they'll take whatever scrap they can find from the battlefield, ruin vehicles, things like that, and cobble it back together into something properly orky and get it working. Blood axes actually are tactical, sort of, kind of. As much as orcs tend to be. Yeah, they tend to be the ones who are the most sneaky. It's less, I think it's less of a conscious thing and and more of just a kind of innate thing that they somehow managed to do on accident. (laughs) Right. I mean, they're still pretty orky, but other orcs kind of think they're weird because they don't just run up and fight things. They sneak up and then fight things. And then there's freebooters. Freebooters are pirates. And I mean that literally. Yep. <laughs> they have pirate hats and <laughs> skulls and crossbones. And uh, I don't think if they know why if you asked them, but uh, they also tend to have the flashiest guns. Yeah. The, w- once upon a time when, like, you'd have the, the kind of allied rules, like, they used to be, like, the mercenaries that would work with other factions. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of a, a quick re- overview uh, of orcs and, and how they work. Um, so, like I said, the tactics you would see in the past are like big masses of boys, or lots of lots of vehicles, lots of fast vehicles, or lots of of walker type vehicles, and now lots of squig riding, beast hunting guys. But if we wanted to look at what's really changed about this codex and how it's kind of working. Um, so there's a few new things that have happened. Now, one of them is not actually, actually a couple of them are not actually abilities that you would see with keywords. Like we've talked about the beast snaga thing, and that does show up on a lot of units, but the biggest change that's happened to this codex across the board is that orcs are tougher than they've ever been before. Literally they've added one toughness to Every orc, not Gretchen, screw Gretchen, they're weak and weak and weedy, uh, but, uh. Actually, they used to be tough too. Oh, did even, oh did God. even Grotz get, wow. Even Grotz got tougher. They are now tough three. Oh, well, okay. Nice. I had missed that. But yeah. So yeah, across the board, orcs got tougher. Um, also a number of their characters got more wounds and also, Everything that is a boss of some sort, whether it's, well, Gasgol already had an invulnerable save, but war bosses, um, boss Nickrot, boss Zagstruck, the Death Killer War Trike, they, the beast boss and the beast boss on Squigasaur, they have invulnerable saves now. They are, they have, have dead tough or some variation on that, which is a rule that basically says this model has a five up invulnerable save. Um, one of the problems with 
with orcs used to be, well, their characters are very killy in close combat, but they also tend to die very quickly because they, they have crap armor for the most part. And they didn't have great toughness for a combat character and they didn't have an invulnerable save of any, anything to mention. So now you've got a war boss who is tough six, six wounds, four up armor, five up invuln. He's going to be a little bit harder to bring down, especially because he'll be probably, you know, protected by a squad of boys who are kind of moving up with him. Yeah. Or, or he might have a, a, a pain boy behind him, stitching him back up as he goes along. Yeah. And in fact, I believe, let's see, pain boys. Yeah. Cause pain boys will just heal somebody for, for two wounds. If they're, you know, within three inches of, of a character or of a, you know, an infantry unit. So they, yeah, you can just be following along. Um, now the one thing like infantry orcs tend to only move five inches. They're a little bit slower. They kind of lumber a little bit. Yeah. But if you want, if you don't mind, uh, if you want to go cult to speed, like you got the death kill a war trike and, uh, he's moving 14 inches and is tough six with eight wounds and still has that five up and vulnerable and four up normal save. So he'll be fast and, and fighty and tough. So yeah, that's also an option. And I think the, uh, the, the new beast boss on Squigasaur, tough seven, nine wounds. Dead tough, four up armor, moving 10 inches and has just a ton of nasty attacks. So, uh, there's some really nasty options without even getting into named characters as far yeah. as your, your HQs. So your HQs are way tougher. Few other things that have changed. One rule that orcs have had for last few editions is, uh, here we go, which, uh, uh, represented the fact that orcs like to get into a fight and so they could re-roll uh, charge rolls. Now, it used to be you could re-roll one or both dice on your charge roll. It's now you have to re-roll the entire charge roll. So um, if you don't like the result, you've got one chance to get it right, but you don't get to pick and choose. Uh, generally, you'll be fine, though. So orcs are still going to be very assaulty. Yeah. Another change... Uh, a lot of their guns are no longer assault weapons, which hurts a little bit uh, in that they are uh, – you can't uh, advance and shoot them. But what they've done instead is made them a new class of weapons called DACA weapons. Uh, if you don't know, DACA, DACA, DACA is how it works. Describe the sound of a machine gun firing. Uh, DACA weapons are kind of like rapid fire weapons, except instead of just straight up doubling the number of shots at half range – they have two values. The first number will be the number of shots at half range or less. The second number will be shots at full range. And so, like, you'll see, like, I think, what, shooters are DACA 3-2? Yeah. 18-inch uh, range. So at 9, at, like, 10 to 18 in inches, they're going to be two shots each. Once they get within 9 inches, they're going to be three shots each. Yeah, which I don't really see the the losing the the ability to like advance and shoot. If I was running shooter boys, I generally didn't advance them anyway because the reason you run shooter boys is you want them to shoot, right? A and less so you want them in close combat. So I I, I don't think that. And plus, when you advance and and shoot, you you're taking a minus one and most orcs are ballistic skill five. So hitting on right. sixes, 
you don't end up doing a whole lot anyway. So, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And on the flip side of that, they did lose the rule that was uh, called Daka Daka Daka, which caused you like if you rolled a six to hit, you got an extra. Or yeah, yeah. it was sixes. Sixes always hit, and then you got to make an additional hit roll. That rule is gone. So to make up for that, shooters just have more shots in close range. And that also carries over to big shooters, which are now DACA 5-3. So uh, they used to be um, like Assault 3. So now your big shooters are getting, you know, five yeah. shots at 18-inch Mo- range. No, Most no all there. of the things that, that were Assault and then a number more than two, a lot of times, whatever number of shots they were, that's still at least the same. That first number is still like the bare minimum that you're going to be shooting anyway. Right. And then the close range one is more. That's And also one other thing I noticed is like their rocket launches, they went from assault to heavy, but they also all became heavy D3 at least and blast weapons. So yeah. they're getting more shots with their rockets, which actually makes their rockets a little bit scarier too. Definitely a good change. Also their choppas, which is the like default orc close combat weapon, uh, all became AP minus one, so even deadlier in close combat. Yeah. They kind of switched the kill saws and power claws. Kill saws still have the better AP, but their damage is a D3 now instead of a, the fixed number. And the power claws, which are more common anyway, are, are AP minus three and do a flat two damage, which. Mm-hmm. I, I like better because, like, getting your war boss stuck in and, and rolling with the, the power claw, which subtracts ones from hit rolls anyway. So when you get those hits in, you want them to, to really count and always kind of felt bad to roll one on that D3 for the. Oh, damage. yeah. Right. Yeah. And it just streamlines things by cutting down the number of rolls you have to do too. So it just yeah. makes, especially when you're, you know, your orcs, you're going to be rolling lots of dice. Anything you can do to streamline it is better, which is also a good reason to get rid of Daka 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 and just give you more shots off the, at the get go rather than redoing right, a lot yeah. of rolls or extra rolls. Also, another thing that changed a lot, mob rule, uh, used to be a thing where, um, you basically look, Let's see. They've changed mob rule, I think, in every it's, edition of the it, Orc Codex. It, it, is, it is constantly changed. And for, like, I have a hard time remembering what it did in the last edition, because it was the edition that I actually played probably the least Orcs. So so the, so the last version of mob rule was, when you use the leadership characteristic of this unit, you can either use its own leadership characteristic or you can choose for the characteristic to be equal to either the number of models in the unit or the number of models in another friendly unit within six inches that has this ability. So the flip side is, let's say you've got a unit of boys and it's a full mob of 30 and then it loses 12 models in in shooting. Well, its leadership is either 18 because there are there are 18 models left or hey maybe the leadership is 30 because they're within six inches of a an undamaged mob of boys which considering that combat attrition kind of is a thing now that would be bad for the system (laughs) yeah 
I mean, one of the one of the things that happened recently that we didn't cover in news and new releases was that uh, there was an ad uh, an Adeptus Mechanicus uh, FAQ and Errata, and one of the things they did was there was a uh, stratagem called acquisition at all costs, which basically said if a uh, unit was within like was c- controlling an objective, you could spend CP to make it auto pass morale, and you could use it every single turn it wasn't limited to once per game the way insane bravery is uh it is now limited it is i think more expensive and limited to once per game now to make it on par with insane bravery which is something that's a welcome change because it means that mechanicus units might be subjective to uh combat attrition because people are running blobs of 20 skitari and Dennis, you've been on the receiving end of combat attrition, so you know how effective that can be. Yeah, which is why most people run small units, not big ones. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if they'd had that rule in place, um, that would have been bad for game balance. So they've changed mob rule because it's a new edition and they have to. Um, and uh, I think it's just tradition at this point. Uh, yeah. But uh, mob rule is now, while this unit's within six inches of a friendly clan mob unit that is not under half strength, this unit is never considered to be under half strength. So as long as there's a mob nearby that's above half, then you don't get the extra penalty to combat attrition, which I think is a good way to make orcs. They're still subject to combat attrition without necessarily falling apart due to combat attrition. Yeah, because yeah, the half strength makes you have like fail thirty three percent of the time on like two numbers rather than just failing on one number. Mm-hmm. And uh, then another another rule. This one is actually a new rule, but I've it's been referenced in past codexes. I think sixth edition, may sixth and seventh edition, may have been the last time it was really a thing. But there's a rule called ramshackle now, which is applied to almost every orc vehicle except for the Lords of War. And we'll talk about why I said Lords of War, because there's now more than one. Um, Ramshackle uh, basically represented the fact that orc vehicles are put together out of scrap and twine and wire and shouldn't hold together, but they sure do. And they seem to just not be hurt that badly because they are made out of junk most of the times. And so Ramshackle now says each time an attack is allocated to this model, unless that attack has a strength characteristic of eight or more. So we're talking dedicated anti-tank weapons like Melta, rockets, things like that. Those will ignore this rule. But everything else, subtract one from the damage characteristic of that attack to a minimum of one. So, for example, autocannons, which are a very popular choice. Many of them are like strength seven, AP minus one, two damage. Only do one damage now. So it means your orc buggies, which are ramshackle, your orc trucks, which are ramshackle, your orc flyers, which are ramshackle, um, they will not suffer as much damage. You know, now, like, small arms fire will still work, but they generally tend to be tough enough to be able to weather small arms fire pretty well. So it's those mid-range weaponry is really going to suffer a bit against orcs, which makes uh, Cult of Speed even more playable as an option. Yeah. In the previous codex, pretty much trucks were, I think, the only thing that were ramshackle. And it was roll a d6 each time this model suffers a damage from an attack that has a damage characteristic of more than one on a six, reduce damage caused by the attack to one. So it had less of a chance of happening. Like, the 
this new version just automatically happens if it's an attack seven or less. So right, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's really good, and that carries over to your battle wagons, your killicans, your death dreads, death coptas. They're all ramshackle. I mean, all these things are going to be just shrugging off fire. And then we've got the new stuff like the kill rig and the hunter rig. They're ramshackle. They're all rocking like 16 wounds. So it's like these things are going to be hard, much harder to take down. It's going to take, you know, effectively twice as much firepower. You know, if you're used to using like two damage weapons to, to use at vehicles, that's also going to carry over to like close combat. So if you, if you've got attacks that do two damage per swing, well, they're doing one damage per swing unless you're at strength eight or higher. So like your thunder hammers and stuff and your power claws and things like that, they'll still be fine. But, uh, like, your weapons that just add, like, plus one or plus two strength probably aren't going to cut it, and you're going to have a hard time. So, you've got more resi- more resilient vehicles, tougher orcs. I mean, like, everything in this army is harder to kill than it was before. And that means more orcs and more vehicles and more things like that are going to be getting into your lines, which means you're just going to have a really rough time dealing dealing with these orcs and they're going to put out a lot of damage. Yeah, orcs I think they've this may be, you know, granted we don't have uh a lot of uh play obviously we don't have play experience with this yet, but there's some real potential for orcs to just be an absolutely terrifying army to face because they're going to close in on you super fast. They're going to find ways whether it's trucks, whether it's you know, there have vehicles coming in. They might be kind of a one-two punch where you've maybe, maybe it's squig hog riders coming in or war bikes or buggies and then following up with boys. You'll probably have Gretchen doing the role of, uh, you know, your, your scoring action units or maybe teleporting in some orcs to, to do actions or sneaking in, infiltrating in commandos. I mean, there's now that like actions and performing actions of score is really a thing and doing board control and dropping units in different table quarters and stuff like that. Orcs are going to have a lot of options for doing that. And so I think they're going to be a pretty well-rounded army, although hopefully not to the extent that like Mechanicus was or might still be. Right. And, And part of getting there, getting there and getting stuck in, Yes. Is the law, which yes. is a, a, a key army wide rule that we should probably also talk about. Oh, absolutely. We absolutely need to talk about the law. Now, once upon a time, and by once upon a time, I mean the eighth edition codex, which many of you may still have, uh, the law was basically you declared a law once per game and then, uh, like units within infantry units from your clan within six inches could charge after advancing and that was it it was a pretty simple rule kind of just or no it was just always on wasn't it 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 was yeah like once upon a time like sixth seventh edition you actually had to declare a wall now like in eighth edition it was just an aura your war boss just had an aura of advance and charge right now the wall is something that once again you declare so this is how the how it works if your warlord is a war boss and that's keyworded. Then once per battle in your command phase, you can call a WA. To do so, that war boss must be on the battlefield or embarked in a transport. This is one of the few cases where a unit embarked in a transport can still affect the battlefield. 
if your warlord is a speed boss, then which is basically the death kill a trike, then uh, once per battle you can call a speed wa instead. To do so, that speed boss must be on the battlefield. If your warlord is Gazgul Thraka, you can instead call a great wa, and the great wa gets the benefits of both the wa and the speed wa. Now the wa. Ha- and the speed wall have two stages. The first one happens during that turn, you know, basically from when you declare it until your next command phase, stage one happens. And then in the next command phase, stage two happens. So stage one for a wall is called a wall. Orc core and orc character units from your army are eligible to declare a charge even if they advance. So that ability still happens, but it's no longer an aura. It's table-wide. Yep. And add one to the attacks characteristic of orcs orcs models from your army. So when your orcs get stuck in, whether they're core or character, they're doing more attacks. Then... Stage two, which will be your next turn, get stuck in or add one to the attacks characteristic of orc models in your army. So first turn, you get the advance and charge and the extra attacks. Second turn, you get just get the extra attacks. And then third turn, it'll go away. But you can choose when you declare that. So like if you're playing uh, like if you've got some like you could easily set up a turn two set of charges and, you know, declare your wall on turn two and then turn three ha- still have those extra attacks. Now, the speed wall, on the other hand, which is more geared towards, like I said, bikes, buggies, things like that, stage one is the big race. Orc models from your army do not suffer the penalty incurred to their hit rolls for firing assault weapons in the same turn in which they advanced. And each time an orc vehicle or biker model from your army shoots with a DACA weapon, make an additional attack. So their DACA weapons get even better, which also means, like, the... Like the big shooters uh, on like your flyers, if you decide to go with like DACA jets, are going to do extra shots as well. Yeah. And each time a model in an orc vehicle or biker unit from your army makes a range attack, improve the AP by one. So your shots are, you get more shots, you can advance and shoot without penalty, although again, you can't fire DACA weapons and advance and shoot. Uh, And then their AP is better, and then turn two, their AP is just better. And if you have Gazgul, you get all of that. Yep. All the things. <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, I, I think this is a good way to bring back, make that that chance, like that choice to call the wall a strategic choice. Yeah, I think so. But army-wide is, is a much better way to do it. Yep. And so, yeah, this, you know, there's going to be a little bit, a little bit more fine thinking. I know last, last episode we recommended that, uh, like, hey, you know, orcs would be a good army to get into if you don't want to get into just something that is uber resilient and, and slow the way Death Guard is, but you don't want something that requires a lot of, you know, finicky, uh, tactical decisions the way, like, a sister's army might, um, Orcs are, I'd say, are still in the middle there, but they've definitely started leaning a bit more towards the Death Guard level of resilient, although not completely there yet. And also having a little bit more uh, tactical acumen required to, like, call, you know, call your wall at the right time. Yeah. And, you know, what to advance with and what not to advance with, with the, the addition of DACA weapons. Right. It's a little less you know, straightforward than it used to be, but it's still not a complex math problem. 
No, it's it's <laughs> it's not super tough. Um, a couple other things to to keep in mind for for orc building. They've put in some rules for army construction that says that you can only have one war boss or death killer war trike per detachment. So that's new. Yeah, don't think you're loading your army with like ah, I'm just going to take like three war bosses in in my uh, battalion. No, you won't. But that's because. <laughs> Some orcs got to be the biggest. You can't have two bosses. That's just not going to work. <laughs> right. But there's there's still room for, you know, you can take your Psyker or you can take mechs. So there, there are definitely, uh, you know, other HQ options to be taken. Oh, yeah. Um, also, we're going to look at stratagems real quick. Um, not going to dig through all of these, but a couple of things to note if you are familiar with the previous orc codex. Unstoppable Green Tide, which basically let you replace a, you know, a depleted Orc Boys unit with a new Orc Boys unit. That's gone. That is no longer a thing. And that's probably a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's from, from a matter of balance and, you know, gameplay perspective. That's that that could be something that I could see like rule zeroing in on, like, you know, narrative play. But yeah. Yeah. Another thing that is gone is mob up. Uh, mob up used to be a stratagem that basically allowed you to take two units of the same kind of, like two of the same kind of unit. So, like if you had two units of orc boys or two units of storm boys, you could combine them into one bigger unit. Um, I think one of them had to be below starting strength. The, so like you couldn't just uh, the. It was always kind of restrictive. Oh yeah, it's like if one had ten or more and the other had ten or had ten or less, right? Then like you, you could, could combine. Right, you could never like go above like the starting size really of most units with those. And I I have to imagine partially that's just because like with combat attrition and morale and half strength full strength again being a thing that you have to keep track of. Trying like what is half strength to a unit that it, that two units that are now one unit is their starting strength what they are when they mob up, uh, right? It's just better to get rid of that and make it not a thing. Yeah, it. I, I can say I when they introduced that like and granted like I said I I didn't play it works a whole lot but I don't think I really ever got a chance to use that. <laughs> yeah, um, and then uh, one strat I definitely want to point out here because uh, considering the change to acquisition at all costs uh breaking heads is a strat for two cp that says use it in the morale phase when a morale test is failed for a clan unit excluding gretchen because nobody cares if gretchen run away um <laughs> from your army that's within three inches of any friendly clan war boss or clan knobs units that clan unit the one that it is failing morale test suffers D three mortal wounds and the morale test is treated as having been passed. And the reason I point this one out is it is not having a limitation of once per game. And I'm wondering if like, if we could expect an errata to do that to kind of even things out across the board. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, this is basically a rule that like pretty much all the war bosses and knobs used to have in the last codex. Right. So uh, I could see it going either way. Like, and again, having not played a whole lot of ninth edition and not really having 
had much experience with the with the morale phase, which is apparently very important. I can I could definitely see this being changed to where it is once once per game or, or well you are taking what d3 mortal wounds if you do it yeah you do take yeah. d3 mortal wounds so you're going to basically take the same effect as failing a morale test possibly slightly worse but without having to worry about combat attrition right so uh, i mean i could like i said i could see it either way mm-hmm yeah, and the only reason I, I bring it up is because, uh, like, if they hadn't changed the uh, Mechanicus one, I don't think anybody would really notice. But now that they have, I'm wondering if we're going to see more of these, like, passing morale abilities getting locked down to one per once per game just so that uh, you don't have an army that is a th- – like, I'm curious to see what they're going to do with Nids, because we know they're going to be coming more or less soon, because they're kind of one of the key players in the whole Octarius campaign they're working up to. Right. And with Synapse traditionally making them immune to uh, morale, you know, it's like that could actually be really overpowered. So we'll have to see how the we'll have to see how this works out. And if uh, the D3 Mortal Wounds is enough and 2CP cost is enough to balance this out where they don't have to errata it but time and competitive play will tell like that's yeah we'll, yeah that's where we'll find out <laughs> yeah let's see and if a few more things that have changed in this this army um this one is i mean they announced this ahead of time so it's not like it's a huge surprise but uh, I mentioned Lords of War earlier as plural, and that's because instead of just having the Stampa, we now also have the Morkonaut and Gorkonaut, who were formerly heavy support choices, have been moved to uh, Lords of War. Um, now, like wound-wise and like vehicle-wise, they're they're on par with Imperial Knights now. Like, as I want to say. Yeah, they used to only be 18 wounds. They, so they got a bump up. They're 24 wounds now, and their movement doesn't degrade as much. They used to go 864. They now go 876. So they're, they're tougher. They, like, they don't move as fast as knights to start, but they also don't slow down as much. But they, you know, they don't have ramshackle. Uh, but, uh, they can be equipped with custom force fields, which, or, the, the Morkonaut can. The Morkonaut can. The Gorkonaut. Yeah. But the Morkonaut will basically have a, uh, like a six up and vulnerable against, or it, it'll have a six up and vulnerable at all times. And so, um, the Gorkonaut won't. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting with these being knight equivalents because the Stampa is definitely not a knight equivalent. It's way nastier. Yeah. Also, way cheaper. It dropped from 900 points to like 675. So you can actually fit a Stampa into a list reasonably now. Yes, yes, that was that was a points that was one of the points changes that I did look to see, and, and it did it it got a, a a nice reduction. Yeah, and they also I like I noticed some of the things they really simplified, like the the Super Gatla doesn't have like the the psychic like the crazy rule where like it could run out of shots at some point or. Right, like yeah. sp- spray from target to target. It's now just a DACA twenty four sixteen with a forty eight inch range. Yeah, and that is interesting. A, a a big change between the last codex and this one is uh 
custom force fields in general, it looks like they are just six plus invulnerable saves, auras of six plus invulnerable saves. Because they used to be just against shooting attacks. They used they? to they used to be plus five, but only against ranged weapons. So that's so, an, that's an interesting change. Yeah. So basically, we're this army just has more invulnerable saves, not strong ones. I mean, you don't see anything like there's a couple of units that have four ups. You're seeing like and characters tend to have five ups, but like anything can theoretically get access to a six up. And if you're a beast snagger, you already have a six up. So yeah, yeah. this army is just tougher. Yeah. And then there's Gazgol's little buddy who has who has the what was it? Dark Eldar shadow. Yes, the shadow field the effect. Effect, basically the same thing, two plus invulnerable save, but then once it's failed, it, it's gone. Yep. But yeah, I kind of dig that for, for uh, modeling Makari. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, again, we can't really get into this too deeply without having, um, you know, gameplay with this. And this book, like, just came out in the last, like, last week. And again, this is a top level view, but it hopefully should give you an idea of like what you're getting into with orcs and uh, like what to expect. Like we'll look, like I said, real quick at some of the new units just to kind of run down those. So you've got uh, the beast boss who, like you said, Richard, is basically a war boss equivalent for beast snagas. Yeah, he adds uh, one to melee attack hit rolls for beast snag a core and and characters yeah that's something i noticed on the war bosses as well they don't do re-rolls they do a plus one to hit with melee aura which is is an interesting change um you've got zodgrod wart snaga he can have a unit of super runts which i think is great yeah, he he's a he's a great old character from like second edition that a, a lot of other orcs think is crazy for for liking Gretchen as much as he does and and like he would be a a great uh HQ for like just a Gretchen only RB that he oh, yeah. could totally run now. What what I don't understand though is how can you look at the model and like the picture of this guy with his hair and think that guy is crazy? <laughs> I just, I don't, I just don't see it. Totally, I just don't see every, how anybody every, could come to that conclusion. <laughs> and, and all, all sane leaders have crazy hair like that, right? right. Is that how that works? Yeah. yeah. <sighs> most, the most sane leaders. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do, I do like that the super runs rule allows that unit of Gretchen doesn't just boost their shooting, but allows them to shoot and, uh, perform actions, which just reinforces the idea that Grots are action fodder. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The beast boss on Squigasaur is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I already mentioned that like tough seven, nine wounds. And of course he's got a five up in Vuln. Uh, he has, uh, tough, thick hide, which reduces all damage he takes by one to a minimum of one. I'm glad that you remembered to put the minimum in there. Yeah. <laughs> they would have gotten there and, eventually. Yeah, but I mean, if you <laughs> yeah. thought that like other war bosses were tough, this guy's going to be real difficult to deal with. And then you add in the extra attacks from the Squigasaur's jaws. So he's got a weapon skill of two already. And he's a beast snaga character, so he's Plus one to hit, but you can't go below like 
too anyway. Um, but the, uh, the Squigasaur Jaws, every time he attacks, he gets three additional attacks with this weapon and no more than three. So you can't do like all, f- like your all eight attacks as this. You get five regular attacks. Although actually six, cause he comes with a beast chopper, which gives him an extra attack. So six attacks with it at strength six, AP minus two, two damage. And then three attacks with the Squigasaur's Jaws. Which are strength seven, AP minus three, three damage. Each time he does a wound roll of six, he does three mortal wounds instead. I, yeah. This, I mean, he's a blender. <laughs> yep. And, and, and then there's, there's more Mazrog Skargabad. Who is yeah. the, the, the named version. Yeah. Where, yeah, where he rides big Chompa. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Big Chompa has the same kind of thing going on, except he does four mortal wounds on a six to wound instead of just three. Yeah. And he's armed with a, uh, a gut ripper, which is plus one strength. So now strength seven, AP minus two, three damage. But he's also limited. He's also a snake bite character. So if you're not playing snake bites, maybe you don't want to go Mazrog, but he's, he's <laughs> not a bad choice. Yeah, I mean, snake bites are are a pretty good cho- choice for beast snaggas. Yeah, and we've also got with beast snaggas the pain boss, who is basically what if pain boy but boss level. <laughs> and so it he has like if you wanted a pain boy HQ, he's the way to go. He's got basically all the abilities of a pain boy. The one thing he doesn't have is well, he's a beast snagger, so he does have a six up and run invulnerable and he's not actually a boss so he can't call a wa but that's what the beast bosses are for right he's not a boss so he doesn't he doesn't have that war boss keyword you're not locked out of having a war boss and this guy very true very true we've got a were boy which is basically a second variety of psyker which has access to a different discipline called the beast head discipline, um, which, you know, has some of the same, like you've got some uh, mortal wound abilities, but also a lot of beast snaga focused stuff as well. So things that can make uh squig hot jaws, a squig jaws, smash a squig jaws better, or things that uh, remove cover from, you know, from your, from attacks made by your beast snaggas, things like that. So it just depends. Like, do you really want to lean into beast snaggas and then maybe take a were boy? Otherwise, weird boys are just fine. We'll have all the abilities that you kind of remember. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the beast snagga boys, which is basically on your third troop choice. They're a little bit more expensive than uh, regular boys, but that's because they're also plus one strength. And have the beast snogger rule, so they've got a six up in Vuln. Otherwise, they're pretty similar. Yeah, they only go up to 20 instead of up to 30. True, true. Um, a, a minor change uh, to boys' units in general is the upgrade for a knob is is no longer optional. The, the unit just comes with a knob. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. You almost always wanted to run yeah. a knob anyway. Yeah. Let's see, other new stuff. Oh, and also, boys, they did lose the ability that gave them, uh, they lost the green tide where they, they lost the ability to have more attacks if they were a unit of 20 or more. 
But they also have choppers built in that give them extra attack. Yeah. But they had that before, so they lose some attacks, but I think that's balanced out by them just being tougher and being more likely to stick around, so that's fine. Right. Yeah, there's less in this book of, I think, giving extra attacks than there than there used to be, and more just making the attacks that you have a little more, slightly more quality. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and I, and I think it's more than offset by the extra toughness and, like, just the ability that they're going to stick around a lot longer, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You'll you'll get more combat output of, from them over time, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so you've got the knob on Smash a Squig, who's a fast attack, who is basically kind of like a weaker version of the uh, Beast Boss on Squigasaur. And then Squig Hog Boys, which are what, like, almost what if bikers, but on Squigs instead. But they've yeah. got the same kind of, like, squig hog jaws that are, like, a weaker version of the squigasaurs and things like that. So, like, if you want a cavalry unit, which is also core, um, you know, and again, if you want B-Snag as squig hog boys, you won't be unhappy with. And then uh, the last couple of things that were new, the kill rig, which is basically a vehicle with a, uh, a were boy strapped onto it. 16 wounds, tough eight, ramshackle, still has, you know, Evilaba, stick a cannon, were tower, butcher boys, savage horns and hooves, saw blades. So it's got like six attacks to start, plus four additional attacks from the butcher boys, plus four additional attacks from the savage horns and hooves of the squig pulling <laughs> it, uh, and then saw blades attached to it as well, which are so six attacks with saw blades. Eight attacks with these other attacks, uh, and a psyker strapped to it, and guns. This thing is gonna it, be just it's ridiculous. Kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, and it has transport capacity too, so you can also haul a squad of us uh, beastnaga boys on it. Yep. And then finally, the hunter rig, which is basically that, but with more guns and no psyker, and a little bit cheaper, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And also the kill rig and hunter rig have a snagged ability, which says when they make an attack with the stick a cannon that it has, if an enemy non-titanic vehicle or non-titanic monster loses any wounds as a result of that attack, roll a d6 on a four up. That enemy model cannot finish any type of move more than 12 inches from this model until the start of your next turn. So you hmm. can tether a vehicle or a monster into place, which is pretty neat because uh, giving you a little bit of extra board control with a already nasty vehicle is is pretty cool so uh yeah i mean this is basically like that's the new stuff in the orc codex and we've talked about a lot of the changes looking at the points other than the stompa coming down quite a bit boys went up a point to represent you know that they're tougher like, a lot of the infantry units went up a little bit. Characters tended to go up a little bit more because they're also tougher. But a few other things came down a little bit. It's, like, you'll pay a little bit more for some stuff, but you're going to get so much extra damage output out of it. Um, I think it ends up being kind of a wash. Yeah, I think it probably balances out pretty well. I mean, this has been a... a you know, a more expensive, like, edition of the game, right? Like, point costs in general, like, went up for right. a, a, a lot of armies anyway. So, 
getting tougher and having our points go up a, a little bit more is, I, I think, is, is going to be fine in, in the long run. Oh yeah, that's going to be a fair trade-off, and uh, but you'll still have the ca- the capability to bring a lot of stuff on the table too. I mean, nothing got ridiculously expensive. Yeah. Although I would say this might be an addition where boys before toys is not necessarily true, considering how many options you have now. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think there's. Lots of ways that this army can run like the, I'm so far the, the different strategies and like the different kinds of units you can take. Most of them seem like they'll have the ability to be effective at what they're supposed to do. Yeah. I think for the most part, the internal balance of this book is, is pretty good. I am. Some of the Beast Nagus stuff I'm a little concerned with because, like, the the Beast Boss on Squigasaur and, like, the rigs seem really pushed as far as capability. They, they yeah, they have a lot of offensive output. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. I mean, Gazgul's no slouch at all because, I mean, he's got a DACA 1612 gun and a claw that makes him... Like at full wounds, strength fourteen, AP minus four, four damage, and you can't do more than four damage to him per phase. So I mean, Gazgul's no slouch in any any means, but like he's not the Morven Vol of this army necessarily. You can build a list without Gazgul and be just fine. Yeah, the Beast Boss on Squigasaur might be the Morven Vol of this army. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that kind of locks you into running beast snaggas though with the way their aura works but you know right but also i mean it's good to have have multiple good options i'm just hoping that that one doesn't just like show up like every list become beast snagga focused because of that because i think there's a lot of good options in this book and i'd hate to see it all fall into one thing but i think there's the other options are still generally good enough that you don't have to go that way yeah but but richard as as our local orc player how are you like like what's you what's your initial take on this codex uh my initial take on the codex is like i kind of miss some of the stuff that this book is missing but like i don't have a, as much of a basis for i really haven't played any ninth edition yet so i don't know how much i'll really miss it mm-hmm. I, I mean i'm excited to try out the new stuff i'm I'm excited to see how, like, the old favorites perform. It's kind kind of a neat, you know, experience to, like, be getting back to, to orcs. And, and it, it's kind of like starting the army over again, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm, yeah. I'm learning it all over again. But, like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that no matter what, I'm going to have a blast, Oh, I'm sure you will. And when I get set up in the new place, I'll have a gaming table and you can actually take them out for a spin. Yes. And and speaking of picking up an orc army, uh, they did have the photos of what's in the new combat patrol in here, which hasn't been announced for pre-order yet. But we know the sisters one just was and was exactly as pictured in the codex. So I'm assuming this is going to be the same. And Kevin, you went ahead and ran the numbers on this one. Yeah. So, you know, the latest uh iteration of our combat patrol breakdown yeah like uh, 
assuming it's the exact same price as every other combat patrol, which I think is a safe bet because we've had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. This is like the 13th one. So I'm sure the price hasn't changed. It clocks in at 550 points, uh, the way it's pictured in the, uh, um, in the codex. Uh, it is also, let me just do a quick, let me get back to that page so I can kind of go over real quickly what's in here. Um, it is a, uh, where is it at here? Uh, it's a war boss in mega mega armor. It is uh, two ten man boy squads uh, with knobs, a three uh, death coptas, and a death dread. So lots of new models, which is always nice uh, for for a combat patrol because you can pick up the new war boss, the new boys, the new death coptas, which is very cool. It comes out to five hundred and fifty points, uh, twenty eight power level, which is kind of like right smack in the middle for where uh, all of these armies have been. Um, you know, it's a, actually probably a little bit on the higher side of some of these, uh, which is nice. Uh, you get 25 models total uh, and you get a good variety. You get, you know, lots of boys and then some special, you know, your, your fast attack and your, your death dread models, one HQ, two troops, one fast attack, one heavy support, you know, and it comes out to about four, three point nine like points per dollar on there. So, like again, kind of right in the middle of what you expect with these uh, these combat patrols. You're getting, you know, very, you're getting a, a solid five hundred ish point army. You're getting a good variety and good spread of things that you will use in any build. Um, and in this case, you get the added benefit of you know new models. So, if you're looking to pick up orcs. I think this is a really great box to start with um, because especially, you know, I, we haven't seen the prices yet on the new boys kit or anything, but you know, a new infantry squad box is probably going to be $40. So if you're looking at two of those new boxes, a box of def Coptas, which will probably be in the 40 to $50 range, the character in the, you know, 30, 30, 30 to $35 range and the Death Dread, which I believe is in like the $50 range, you're getting a hell of a deal on these. Oh, yeah. So it's a good discount, and it's all good stuff that you're going to use. Like, this is one, again, I absolutely could see you picking this up brand new and going, yeah, I'll pick two of these up. And that gives me, you know, two war bosses, uh, f- four units of infantry or two, you know, mobbed up units. And the Def Coptas look cool. And we mentioned that, like, the changes to missiles were good for them. And then, you know, the Def Dreads kind of doesn't fit in with the rest of this. But at the same time, they're still good. Um, and they're, you know, they're big vehicles that can go out and, you know, open things up and uh, provide a lot of heavy support. So I think this is a really good, good starter box. And I'm really impressed that they put the new models in it the way they did. Yeah, yeah. Rather than leaning on. But it's like... You don't want to put the beast snaggers in there because that will kind of lessen mm-hmm. the the good vibes of the people who bought the beast snaga box. And right. you don't want to put just Gretchen in there. That's not a great troops choice for Oof. unless you're doing yeah. theme, you know, <laughs> heavy theme. So yeah, you, your options are either use up old boy sprues, which why would you? If you're releasing a new set, or yeah, you put in the new boys. I was surprised to see the new Coptas and a new HQ in there too. I would, I would yeah. not have been surprised if they had recycled the the war boss with the squig that they have. Yeah, that's been like three different characters at this point. <laughs> but yeah, the the mega armor uh, war boss is it was a, a nice addition. So yeah, the only not new model in here is the Death Dread. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think it's very interesting with this combat patrol as well, with the uh, the kill team boxes coming out, that you can get the new commandos there. And I think, you know, potentially those commandos pair really well with this box as well. So it gives you kind of, you know, an, another another dimension to this army and that, that you can add easily and kind of uh, build up on this. So I oh, think it's a good box. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I think so. I think it'll be a good entry point for prospective work players or existing work players who just want to get the new models. So yeah, good for everyone involved. So yeah, that's pretty much our look at the orc codex. Um, let us know if you liked this kind of top down view more than trying us trying to do the book read, especially like I said, uh, last episode where we weren't doing list reviews because we need to get more ninth edition games under our belt. So just kind of trying to get a feel for, for the army rather than doing the, the deep dive. So let us know what you think. And if you prefer this other than just us reading the book. So that will move us on to hobby progress. And I can say without a doubt, I have had no hobby progress. <laughs> I have been packing things up. I have not like all my paints are packed up. My paint brushes are packed up and in storage. Um, I just packed up like all my airbrushing supplies today. So yeah, I'm not I, like, I'm not building anything for at least another month once, you know, until after I move and unpack stuff. So just unacceptable yeah. i can't believe i know i first. know but uh i also didn't have any happy progress but i and i have no excuse i was just being lazy um <laughs> i i've picked up some stuff like i picked up a new bellacore and um you know i've still got some sister stuff to work on but i i haven't i haven't had time for much hobby stuff recently so yeah i've also not got anything done but i have no excuse <laughs> Okay, well, remember how I said I was going to try and work on getting, like, five models done a week so I'd be perfectly done in time for Iron Halo? Mm -hmm. How's that working for you? <laughs> I can't paint that way for some reason. So, um, yeah, I've got the base coat done on the sisters. I've got purple, like, the tabard parts done on the majority of them. And then when I finish all the purples, then I'm going to work on the guns. And then I'm <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's... It's going to be a project doing, I guess, differently. I'm, I'm kind of still doing it like one color at a time. And then when I get to the touch-up part, if I end up having time for that, then that's probably when I'll break out all the little brushes to touch them up. But yeah, right now I'm still doing whatever's the biggest color I need to do, and then I'm kind of doing it that top-down type thing for all 60 models. You're just doing assembly line style. That's pretty standard. I am. It, it is, but I'm still slow at it. But at least it's 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 still coming along. Yeah, you're making progress. For me, uh, I've just been spending extra time, like going over this orc codex, uh, and then I did go ahead and build uh, Zagrod. That's the only of the the new models that I've gotten in a chance to build so far. And then that takes us to the morale phase. And Richard, you said you've been watching something recently. Yes, yes. Uh, it, it is an anime that is uh, currently on net, available on Netflix and also on Funimation. Yes. Uh, it is uh, Demon Slayer, which yeah. is a, a cool little, uh, you know, it, it kind of has that you know, shonen anime like format of, you know, kid has to progressively fight like tougher and tougher opponents and, and get stronger and stronger as he goes along. But uh, it, it's a kid who 
in the first episode has people that he cares about, you know, killed by demons and finds out that demons are real and then, you know, makes it his mission to fight demons. <laughs> um, it's been hence the name inter- of the show. Hence the name of the show. It, it's been pretty entertaining, uh, unlike a lot of the the typical like shonen kind of animes they they tend to like draw things out for like many episodes and i i was surprised at how kind of fast paced this series was yeah it, it's mm. definitely not like two characters screaming at each other for a season right because like <laughs> like he he does like six months of training and and has like this final confrontation kind of thing and like that all takes place within what like the first three or four episodes right Whereas a traditional like shonen type anime that would be like the first two seasons <sighs> yeah well that's that's a good that's good to know because i i've been interested in watching this show but i kind of don't like the pacing of a lot of anime so like i don't like oh, the no, fact the- that that spreads out over two seasons. Like I, I lose interest. So it's good to know that it's more tightly paced than that. <laughs> oh yeah. It's definitely got a good tight pace to it. Most of your story arcs in here take about, yeah, three or four episodes to complete. Um, the animation is absolutely beautiful. Yes. The, um, the, the characters are, there's a lot of fun characters that, that you meet within, like, just in the first season. Like, the, the bad guys are all very unique and interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. And also unquestionably bad in many cases. Like, yeah. You don't feel bad about these people being beaten. It, there's, there's an interesting kind of dichotomy with that, though. Like, you kind of, yes, there's a, there's a certain sort of, I don't know, pity, I think, that you, you start to feel for, like, some of them. That, yeah, they, they tend to have, like, tragic backstories, like, something that explains how, like, cause the idea on this is, like, demons aren't just creatures from hell. It's, like, people who have become demons. Right. And you generally find out, like, what drove them to this point? And yeah, so th- you do get that, like you said, that sense of, of pity, but it also doesn't forgive them for having done the bad, like the absolutely terrible things they've done. Right. Um, also, the uh, the movie uh, is available on Funimation, and it it's an interesting movie because, like a lot of anime movies, like that where there's a TV series and then a movie, a lot of times the movie is a side story. Uh, where it's like it's a thing that happens. It's really unclear where it happens in like the canonical storyline. Yeah, that, and that's so, a real common thing with the anime movies. But from from yeah. what I've seen, I haven't watched the movie yet. It's it's I'm I'm gonna probably you know get to it sometime this weekend. But like it it looks to be just you know like what happens right after the first season. So yes, yeah, it is literally like. Because, like, this is also all available as manga, and, like, the movie is, like, what happens in, like, one or two volumes of manga exactly where they'd be in the storyline. Also, this is a series that, unlike a lot of anime, I'm looking at you, One Piece, eventually ends. <laughs> it's, hey, it's, yeah. The creator said it's getting close to the ending, and most people are predicting within three to five years from now. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is why I and don't this like is why anime. we can't have nice things. But no, the manga hey, is I'm actually still enjoying One Piece, <laughs> and you will be for a while from the sound of it. But uh, works for me. But uh, this is a series that's actually done. Like the manga is done, and so the anime will eventually be done. And I think it was done in like I think there's only like thirty volumes of manga, which is which is actually relatively short for. Right, uh, it, you know, it, for some series, and it, it'll be a nice thing for you know an anime to be able to go through the story and not outpace the manga, and then have to make up a, a really crappy version of like the ending. Because I'm looking at you, Trigun and and Soul Eater. <laughs> Trigun and Soul Eater and Shaman King and the first time they did Full Metal Alchemist. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, it's like, we're going to license this manga. Is it done yet? No, but that no. won't stop us. You end up with, what you end up with is Game of Thrones season eight. Yeah. yeah like over and over again. <laughs> But that's uh, that's always worked out every time they've ever adapted something before it's finished. I don't know why they've why you know it, it's low risk. Like it always works out, right? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there, there's there's some cool things going on in the story. Like there, there's like the normal thing with like the shonen characters, like you said. Richard, there's a lot of the standard Shonen tropes where, like, the, he has a set of, like, special attacks that he, like, declares when he does them, and they have, like, cool moves and animations. Like, certain moves are, like, the counter to this enemy's particular thing. Also, he tends to get the shit beat out of him in every single fight. Yeah. <laughs> like, this isn't something where he, like, just takes a couple of hits and then walks away from it. No, no, no. He's... He, And, uh, he's also got the thing with, like, his family, like Richard said, gets killed by demons early on. But it also turns out his sister did not get killed, but instead got turned into a demon. And so he also wants to protect his sister and try to figure out how to cure her. And so that becomes a big point of contention, especially because it turns out he's not the only demon slayer. There's an entire demon slaying organization and they're not that keen for him having a demon around for some reason. Yeah. Go well, figure. Yeah. I mean, it worked out well for Eisenhorn. I don't see why it's a problem. Well, you know, that's actually an interesting uh, parallel. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it, yeah, there's, and there's moments of lightheartedness, there's some good comedy, but there's also, like, drama and some tear-jerking moments and some just absolutely brutal and beautiful combat. What I want to say it's, like, episode 23 or 24 is um, of the first season is the episode that our friend Tim described as, this was the episode that broke the internet because <laughs> the fight animation <laughs> is just insanely good. And he like this big attack gets pulled off and it, it's an awesome watch. And then they carry through that, uh, that quality into, into the movie. And then the movie is done with a movie budget, which by the way, the movie is now the most successful film ever in Japan. And that was well, it, with the pandemic. Right. And it, and because, and partially because of the pandemic, but it was also the highest grossing worldwide film last year. So an anime yeah. film was the highest grossing movie in the world. 
last year. Yes. Which is interesting. Yes. Like, I think that's, that, that's a cool thing. <laughs> so yeah, highly recommended. Um, yeah, if you, if you're at all curious, if you want to watch some sword fighting and also it's set in an interesting period of time because it's set in like the 1910s, 19, 1910s, 1920s. So which is an era we don't often see covered in, in manga because it's not samurai era, nor is it like, modern or world war ii era it's you know it's the taisho area era of japanese history and that's a period of time that doesn't get covered a lot so it's kind of interesting to see how you've got this mix of traditional japanese culture and incoming westernization as well so there's there's just a, a lot of neat stuff going on neat oh god there was a meme on describing demon slayer and i can't can't find it but it talks a lot about like how like main character learns to main character with a funny sense of smell learns to breathe and fight demons. Right. And, like, and, and, and goes on an, on a demon slaying outing with, with sleepwalking Pikachu and Peppa Pig. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and we are not kidding about that. Like that's actually an accurate description. Huh. And, and I don't want to give away more than that because. Yeah. <laughs> Because the moments of dis- this, like, this is one of those series where the moments of discovery are are worth it. Like it's actually mm-hmm. really, yeah. Here we go. Demon Slayer. <laughs> this is a, a slightly different one, but it's it's close. Demon Slayer in a nutshell. My sister got turned into a demon, and I'm teaming up with a Dorito and a weird looking Peppa Pig to fight Michael Jackson. Right. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Can okay. confirm. <laughs> One hundred percent accurate. Yes, and I, I'm just going to leave that there. But uh, so yeah, Demon Slayer highly recommended. Catch it on Netflix or Funimation. The movie is only available on Funimation, and yeah. like I said, it's it is actually part of the storyline. You will want to catch the movie, but I think it might also be available like as a one off purchase on. Uh, I don't know if Amazon Prime has it. No, doesn't look like. That's of let's see Prime Video. No, it's not available on Amazon. So yeah, you'll have to have to watch it on Funimation. The dub is also really good. So yes. yeah, so if you don't if you don't like subtitles or you want to have it like kind of on in the background so you can just listen to it, the dub is really good. So uh, it's perfectly good in English. So highly recommended. Go check it uh, out. I don't know. Look it in the app. Uh, under Amazon, and it looks like I can buy it for twenty dollars. Oh, okay, the the movie anyway. Yeah, it looks like it's showing Actually, up. Yeah, I see it when I search for it. Yeah, so it's yeah, available to purchase and, and, on Amazon. Yeah, it's a the both the the series and the the movie are available for purchase on Amazon, but they're not Prime streaming or anything. Right. And anyway, that brings us to a close. This has been episode 242 of Preferred Enemies. Um, scheduling for episode 243, we're going to try to hit it in two weeks, although I will probably be down to recording on my laptop sitting at a, well, we might not even have a kitchen table at that point. Um, <laughs> we're, uh, my parents are leaving a lot of stuff behind, so we're, we are unloading stuff as we, as we speak, but, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I'd, we'll we'll find a way to record. We'll try to keep, yeah, keep yeah. things going. We've got t- we'll we'll have two new codexes to look at. So we'll pick yeah, one absolutely. of them. <laughs> and who knows? 
kill team might be coming before long. So I, I vote that we, we do thousand sons because I don't, I think Richard will like shut down if he has to talk that much in two episodes in a row. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. All right. We'll give you a break and maybe do thousand sons if, if we get a chance. So, but until then, from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and... Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2 No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.